Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Our next guest is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the GHR Foundation, Amy Goldman. Amy serves as that leadership position at the foundation here in Minnesota. Her training has been in foreign service and diplomacy all over the planet. Her work has been felt and continues to be felt today, including her work on trade negotiations and her global perspective. She sits on the board of Georgetown and the Walsh School of Foreign Policy, the Jesuit Refugee Service International Development Group, Mayo Clinic's Leadership Council, and on the Council of Foreign Relations. GHR Foundation was the first foundation that I found in our country that explicitly tied their grant making to specific sustainable development goals. It was uh, inspired us here at Global Minnesota to dig in deeper and get more directly involved in that work on the UN SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals. I'm really grateful to have her uh, perspective here today and her remarks will be followed by two of our most distinguished leaders in our medical community, Dr. Jacob Tolar, who's Dean of our University of Minnesota Medical School, and Dr. Anton Decker, President of Mayo Clinic International. Thank you again to all of our presenters for being with us today. Hello from Minneapolis in the United States. I'm Amy Goldman of GHR Foundation. And it's wonderful to be alongside GHR partners and with all of you today as we observe World Health Day 2021 and come together to advance health equity at the local, national, and global levels. For those of you not familiar with GHR, we're a hope-fueled global funder working alongside communities in the areas of health, education, racial equity, and international development. Our stated purpose is to be of service to people and their limitless potential for good. When Mr. George Floyd was killed almost a year ago, just four miles from our Minneapolis offices, we began reckoning with the fact that Mr. Floyd, like many black, indigenous, and people of color, had long been denied the right to their limitless potential. In a similar way, the devastation of COVID-19 has awakened the world to a crisis of broken systems. Health, economic, and racial inequities are growing rather than shrinking and offering us a critical crossroad to rethink the way forward. Yet we see reason for hope as we hear new calls for change through collaborations such as World Health Day. We're leaning into that change at GHR, taking steps today that prepare a different future, one that heals, that builds community and creates conditions for equity and solidarity to flourish. And that's why Global Minnesota's focused conversation on health equity is so critical to all of us. In the past year, we brought an equity lens to global health by resourcing the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator for Vaccine Access alongside MasterCard, Gates, and Wellcome Foundations, as well as seed funding the World Economic Forum's COVID-19 Response Alliance. GHR also believes in the values-based approaches of faith actors and supports the Vatican COVID-19 Commission, along with Religions for Peace, to bring equitable responses of faith leaders to communities globally. And we're looking beyond this pandemic in addressing health inequities. 
As a leading funder in the prevention of Alzheimer's dementia, we are asking ourselves how race, skin color, and income matter. Like in other health issues, it's critical to name prevalent inequities and understand why they persist to truly address them, not only in care, but also upstream into research and to prevention. Because just as this pandemic has been killing people of color and those with lower incomes at higher rates, dementia is too, only more slowly and with no end in sight. Currently, nearly 60% of all people with dementia live in low and middle income countries, which are often least equipped to cope with the calamitous impact of this disease. But we are not arguing for greater equity simply out of altruism or an innate sense of justice. Rather, we also view greater equity as the most practical and the effective approach to solving problems. Because if we aren't proactively focused on understanding and helping those who need it most, we will miss our greatest opportunity to make a global impact, whether it be on COVID, Alzheimer's disease, or other health crises. So it's really a privilege to be among you today, and my thanks to each of you for all that you do in advancing health equity. A special thanks to Mark Ritchie and the entire Global Minnesota team for their ongoing efforts to bring Minnesota to the world and the world to Minnesota. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Jacob Tolar. I am a physician. I do bone marrow transplant for a living. I'm the Dean of Medical School and Vice President for Academic Clinical Affairs at the University of Minnesota. It is an honor to be here with you today and thank you for having me. So as somebody who has practiced medicine on both sides of Atlantic and uh, seen it elsewhere over a span of 30 years, I have been struck how location matters. So the ancients said that character is fate. In medicine and in healthcare, it is almost that where you born and where you get sick is what determines what kind of healthcare, what kind of life, what kind of medicine, what kind of support you're gonna get and how healthy you will be and how long you will live. The important thing is that it doesn't have to be that way. It is in this day of digital technology, of uh, widespread information sharing and uh, goodwill, in my opinion, it is entirely possible to change that gradient, change that unfavorable equation for the benefit of mankind. As we have been over the last 12, 15 months, looking backwards at the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, all of us looked at it in a different ways, but our radical reflection on that has been that there is a tremendous ability for the information flow. That's the first step. So our university, as many public universities, in the United States and elsewhere, uh, has a tremendous number of people who are coming from around the world, myself included. English is not my first language, as you probably can tell. And uh, that is really important because all of these individuals have some 
experience that they can bring with them. And again, in that network of uh, collective brain, which is the horizontal one that is spread across the universities, you can find connections between or among fields and among the different pursuits of human knowledge that can enable and I would argue ennoble the pursuit of uh, betterment of mankind. So at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen this very, very well. It was at the time when there were no cases in the United States, but it was really the global connectivity that we had with our colleagues and friends in China, in Italy, elsewhere, that we have been gathering the information. And then later on, from New York City, from Seattle, and these connections have been lifelines for our readiness, our preparedness for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I am sure that other places around the globe has, have had the similar experiences we had. These early connections made all the difference. So we need to normalize information around the globe. We have to be able to provide the information to people that are on the ground and the caregivers anywhere, anywhere, need that ability to connect with others so that they can deliver to their, to their communities. Now, the examples from COVID-19 are, I think, important examples. So for one, we had a task in front of us to build a new ventilator. If you go back in time about a year, you may even remember how certain it was in the different prognostications that the COVID-19 pandemic will overwhelm the ICUs and that there will be in front of my ICU doctors and nurses and other teams, there would be a decision made, you know, who's going to get a ventilator and who's not going to get one. Are you going to do it by age? Are you going to do it by geography? Are you going to just toss a coin. This is, this is a brutal way of thinking about medicine because our common denominator in healthcare is our singular talent is that we alleviate suffering. So it comes as a tremendous burden to, be, to have to make decisions based on resources, not on the clinical guidance. So what happened at that time is that uh, there was an anesthesiologist who was sort of out of work, quote unquote, because we had a restriction of the number of cases we could do in the uh, operating room. And there was a engineer, a group of engineers in the uh, Institute of Engineering and Medicine, and they partnered together across the fields of medicine and engineering and built a low cost ventilator that uh, was essentially a toolbox in an ambubag. And that was mediated by the connections we had internally at the university. It was really something that benefited from the glorious leadership of President Gable, who from the very beginning has assembled a focused team of individuals that have been crossing these college and departmental and field boundaries as if they were not existent, because they are not existent if you are tasked with a tremendous challenge such as the, uh, such as the pandemic. And we have catalyzed this by internal grant programs that we have 
given I think 75 of them and this one was one that we have uh, that we have funded and as it's many things in science and technology you don't know what's going to work until it works so we have had that uh, that mindset uh, that was not a fixed one but a growth one responsive one that said anything reasonable goes and then we will see how it works and this was one of these grants and uh, what happened in a very quick succession, we went from a ventilator shortage that typically a ventilator costs about fifteen to $25,000 on American market. And at the time that we were trying to buy more, not only that the supply chains were exhausted, but also they were uh, overwhelmed by, uh, by increased prices. So these ventilators that typically would sell for 15000 would go for 150000 And uh, we were not in a position to get them. So getting a uh, and be back in a toolbox for $150 was a tremendous difference. But we also, and that's equally important, we have not cut any corners. We went to FDA, got the approval from the FDA, and the plans that we have, the blueprints that we have developed around that ambu back and the toolbox that conventor ventilator have been posted online so that anybody can use them. This is a crowdsourcing, if I've ever heard one. And uh, that is that, uh, that that important portion of what we have learned from the COVID-19, that the research and technology, the advances were not driven by ego or profit. They were driven by compassion and ingenuity. That's very refreshing and that's very optimistic. That, that, that optimistic stubbornness that went into this, that boldness of spirit that have connected people that usually don't work with each other and the connectivity of a common purpose to actually help the communities that need. And then we have seen that these plans were downloaded more than 100 times around the globe and used in the real pandemic. And uh, the beauty of this, of course, is that you do not have to have the best-selling, most profitable answer to the problem. The, the challenge here is much more egalitarian. It is to have the most inclusive one. And, and the ability to look at the resource scarce environment is another power of constraints that we have learned from, uh, from COVID-19 pandemic that I think is very applicable to other rounds of healthcare and global healthcare, especially uh, now. Another example can be the diagnostic and pharmaceutical and therapeutic uh, interventions that we have been uh, able to participate in a in a in a in my opinion my teams and others in a magnificent way uh, with the clinical trials with the new uh, ability to repurpose drugs and actually make a statement that is scientifically valid whether these drugs are efficacious or or not and um, the uh, the one part of the uh, of of that of that quest that I like very much is uh, from their medical school, where a researcher and his team in genetic engineering and genetic editing using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology. You may recall what it is because it got a Nobel Prize, uh, which I'm extremely. Um, extremely proud of the committee that it was given to two women uh, <clears throat> at the for the first time in history, I think, in medicine and physiology. And um, 
So the CRISPR-Cas9 technology has been applied by his team to a very important question, which is if you have uh, a little shortness of breath, a little uh, cough and headache and perhaps fever, uh, these days you are convinced that you have COVID-19 and you may not have COVID-19. And it actually matters a great deal whether we know whether that patient has a COVID-19 or not. Now, the other respiratory ailments, such as influenza A, influenza B, and what's called respiratory syncytial virus, can present much like that. And uh, so this team has uh, put together a sort of a multifactorial, multiplexed uh, way of, 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 of using that technology in a very um, simple way, simple to perform way, not simple to uh, to describe and, and, and manufacture way, but simple to deliver way, user-friendly, customer-friendly way, uh, to distinguish uh, among these four uh, strains of viruses, again, the COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2, the, uh, the influenza A, influenza B, and the RSV. This is a test that can be done in a tent, in a doctor's office, it can be done in a pharmacy, and it's a really convenient and useful tool how to differentiate among these four respiratory ailments that are then uh, informing the care and, you know, how we go about this. So pretty cool, I don't think. Uh, so the uh, these are just... Uh, these are just several examples that I don't think will be disregarded as we go forward. And uh, what I think it comes back to the very beginning where I started, which is the the uh, the question of uh, of healthcare. So healthcare has been approached differently at different parts of the globe, but at many uh, places, the healthcare in healthcare, not all people are created equal, and uh, sometimes it's a more privilege than a right. And uh, that is something that we have, uh, I think, seen the massive humanizing force of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic play out and uh, amplify that uh, compassion that is, again, driving the research rather than ego or the profit alone. Long before that pandemic, uh, in our Center of Global Health and Social Responsibility, led by Dr. Shaley Prasad, from whom you will hear in a little later, is being uh, has been operational and connecting the things around the globe in how we can uh, be meaningful, how we can deliver for the communities globally, and how we can amplify the local knowledge to something that is beneficial uh, worldwide. Now, the health equity has always been a, a significant barrier everywhere. And uh, the, uh, sometimes these are uh, the components of that are parts that we, they are difficult to change or cannot be changed. You know, the geography, the physical distance, the different flavors of government, different local histories, different cultural uh, changes. That is a challenge. And... Uh, some of it may not be accessible to our uh, compassionate will. But there are other parts that uh, are actually open and are in the realm of what we can do. And uh, the most prominent of those, I think, at least for me, has been the ability to listen to the communities. And I have learned from my own patients more than I can uh, 
share today, but certainly uh, more than I have learned from different combination of textbooks and my colleagues about how exactly to approach somebody with leukemia or sickle cell anemia or other conditions that I, uh, that I treat. Now, the listening to the communities is the, it's incredibly important, not only because of the righteousness and the justice of it, uh, but also because the knowledge that comes into play has uh, many, many times benefited from the heterogeneity of ideas. And that ability, that variability, or if you can call it a diversity uh, in knowledge has uh, many times in the history of mankind been the driving force of the nearly every civilization. And that human diversity uh, usually comes, that idea comes from an outlier. And uh, that outlier uh, sometimes, you know, has been a person or a, or a view or an uncomfortable uh, emotion that has been pushed uh, to the to the fringes of the uh, of the mainstream and yet has become the catalyzing defining direction that the knowledge has taken afterwards so we are sort of removing ourselves from the uh, from um, coming into the communities and saying this is how we do it this is what you're gonna do and rather turning this into a uh, into a mindset where, we uh, we are combining the boldness and reticence. The boldness in uh, we really want to help, and the reticence in uh, the ignorance, the the humility of ignorance uh, that we recognize is uh, is a part of every discovery, every uh, every science, every technological breakthrough that I know has been built on uh, on that. So I think that the three main points that we are focusing in the World House today is to how to enable information sharing in a way that is accessible worldwide. The second would be that the research has uh, that has widespread benefits does not have to be the uh, high-end, high-profit medicine or technology alone, that, that a scarcity, in fact, can catalyze some of the ingenuity that may not be available to us if we follow the uh, the bottom line and the, uh, the logic of profit alone. And lastly, the, the partnerships that develop, the genuine ones that, uh, that, are, uh, that are passionately dispassionate. They are, they are dispassionate about the values that the communities bring. They are dispassionate about the values that science and technology brings. Uh, but they are very passionate about the outcome which is again, you know, alleviation of human suffering, the, the moral stakes of the economic competition that we are facing today globally. So these partnerships, uh, the third component will benefit the uh, both parties. And uh, we are reminded this year more than ever how connected we are across the globe. This is for many, many, many uh, times. But again, the recent examples are the most vivid in a, uh, you know, any corner of the globe in one continent, you know, the, uh, the, the event can influence communities around the globe. So whether this is COVID or climate change, uh, we, I do, uh, see the health and healthcare as a dependent on our individual actions as a whole that is uh, beneficial to, uh, to everyone. And uh, fact that we are moving from the pandemic to endemic with COVID-19 and that we are, 
I think, uh, seeing the functional end of the COVID-19, not the COVID-0, mind you, the COVID and other coronaviruses will stay with mankind as many other viruses have done, uh, but the ability to domesticate the pandemic into something that we can deal with is only uh, sort of a background to how we need to approach the global healthcare, our, our place in it. I personally think that this is uh, a glorious time. I, I think that reality is fabulous. I think that the uh, the, the steady-state optimism with which many groups have approached this last year will serve us extremely well in how we develop solution-oriented uh, platform of uh, knowledge, how we, the knowledge discovery, the knowledge production, the epistemic part of it will combine with the design, how we take the framework of the traditionally hierarchical and siloed way of uh, distributing knowledge into more a network kind of distribution of knowledge where ideas are non-scarcity goods. You know, the more you use them, the better they do. And they can recombine in a way that would be impossible if you don't let them loose in this way. So the optimism is born from, from that experience and uh, having this connected to the needs of the communities and maximize the public good is, in my opinion, going to be uh, one, of the, uh, one of the best ways of approaching this decade. All right. So I'm grateful that you have all come together in celebration of World Health Day, and I hope that the discussions and sharing of information is productive and enjoyable. Thank you. Welcome, and thank you for joining World Health Day Symposium 2021, hosted by Global Minnesota. I'm Dr. Anton Decker, President of Mayo Clinic International. Mayo Clinic is delighted to be part of this event. There has never been a more important time to address global health equity. Not only is it the right thing to do, but COVID-19 has reminded us how connected and dependent we are on our collective health as a global village. Let me share with you a personal story. I grew up in South Africa, the product of two physicians, a general practitioner and a surgeon. As a child, I would join my father on ward rounds over the weekends in a hospital that treated patients who didn't have timely access to care. So many patients would present with diseases that could have been prevented or cured had they just had access to vaccines, screening, and basic healthcare. Even at a young age, I thought that this was unjust. As a privileged child of a medical family, and as an adult physician in the medical profession, I've always had immediate access to healthcare of any type. That was until COVID-19 hit and I had to wait my turn to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. It was the first time I experienced the tiniest bit of what people feel who have no or inadequate access to care their entire lives. My childhood has long gone, but I still ask myself, why have I been so fortunate and why do health inequities still exist? More than ever, now is the time for us to address global health equity using the knowledge, people, technology, and tools at our disposal. 
For Mayo Clinic, the pandemic highlighted three lessons to improve health equity. First, the world needs a trusted source of medical knowledge. As a not-for-profit academic medical center that sees 1.3 million patients a year, from the US and over 130 countries around the world, Mayo Clinic is the most trusted source of health information and care. We are guided by our primary value, established by our founders more than 150 years ago. The needs of the patient come first. That value informs everything we do, from treating patients to providing evidence-based care, up-to-date medical information for those who visit us, and for people who look to us online from around the world. It also means conducting leading-edge research to provide meaningful data about health disparities, both related to the pandemic and other diseases. It's up to organizations like ours to provide trusted, scientifically-based medical knowledge to the world. Second, knowledge by itself is not enough. It must be applied to a framework of dependable partnerships, people, processes, and technology. Let me give you an example. This year marks the first anniversary of our partnership to develop Sheikh Shaboot Medical City in Abu Dhabi. This collaboration involves Mayo Clinic working shoulder to shoulder with colleagues in the United Arab Emirates. Together we are establishing another major trusted health resource for patients in the region of the UAE, the Middle East and beyond. We are taking the Mayo model of care closer to the patient. The same is true of our new clinic in London, where expertise in treating serious or complex diseases is accessible on-site and virtually. The pandemic also demonstrated in real time how important research collaboration is. All across the globe, our newly established Mayo Clinic platform will create a framework for scientists worldwide to access secure troves of curated, de-identified health data that can advance new cures and treatments. For example, with data from 7 million electrocardiograms, Mayo researchers and their collaborators are creating a tool that doctors can put in their pockets to inexpensively detect heart weakness before patients become sick. This simple digital stethoscope may be a means to bring specialist care to remote or underserved locations. Third, no single entity has all the answers. The greatest opportunities emerge when we combine forces and when we learn from one another. We saw this during the pandemic. When ventilators were in short supply, one group of innovators in South Africa took it upon themselves, in a garage of all places, to develop a ventilator that can run without electricity. It's proof that elusive solutions will only be found through human ingenuity and collaboration. Our interdependency is so beautifully described in the Zulu phrase, Ubuntu. Ubuntu means I am because of who we all are. It describes our common humanity. Indeed, the COVID-19 pandemic reminded us that when we all work together, we are greater than the sum of our parts. Looking ahead, we must take some of the lessons learned during the pandemic and move ahead bravely with new approaches and new resolve.
So as we think about what organizations, communities, and individuals can do to address health equity for people worldwide, remember this. We need not wait a single moment longer to improve healthcare in the world. There is no greater moment for us to work together than now. One of Mayo Clinic's founders, Dr. Will Mayo, said it best long ago. The best interest of the patient is the only interest to be considered. And in order that the sick may have the benefit of advancing knowledge, a union of forces is necessary. From all of us at Mayo Clinic, thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Global Minnesota's World Health Day 2021, where we're focusing on health equity and equality worldwide and right here in our backyard. For those of you who've just joined us, we've just had um, excellent presentations uh, from Dr. Jacob Tolar, head of the University of Minnesota Medical School, uh, one of the leading research and public service public health facilities in the planet. And we also heard from Dr. Anton Decker, who's president of Mayo Clinic International. These two global leading institutions are part of a bigger picture of how we are institutionally tackling health inequities, inequalities, and disparities that this COVID pandemic has shown a bright spotlight on. And it's exciting to hear about some of their successes and to look forward to their continued leadership in that realm. Our next guest is a very special leader, a global leader, who has had the responsibility over the last year of looking at the entire realm of the response at the global level to the pandemic. Prime Minister Helen Clark, who was Prime Minister in New Zealand, uh, before that she served as Health Minister, and then went to the United Nations where she was the head of United Nations Development Program. A year ago, she was asked by the World Health Assembly, which is the governance body of the World Health Organization, to bring the independent panel of experts to look at the response at the global level in terms of preparedness, in terms of where we need to be going forward. They'll be presenting their findings and results to the World Health Assembly that'll come up later this spring. And I had the good fortune of being able to interview her at her home in New Zealand. I'm so pleased that she could be part of this important day. She's one of the true lifelong public servants at the national and global level who's put health equity and equality in the forefront and then help to make the global policies to turn those words into reality through good deeds. Prime Minister Clark, you've been leading very important views and commissions that have been looking into the future, future of children, future of where we need to be. You are coming up with an overview, an inner universal vision of what we're learning. Can you share with our audience from around the planet some of the things that we should all be learning from this current experience? From July of last year, I've been rather preoccupied with the independent panel 
reviewing uh, preparedness and response to pandemics as requested by the World uh, Health Assembly. And we produce our report uh, in around mid-May. We've learned a lot of things. We set out to be uh, not a, a blame casting, but a truth-telling commission about what went wrong and what the lessons are that can be learned from that for the, for the future, and then making recommendations uh, related to the evidence and the learning uh, front. I think in a nutshell, uh, we learned that uh, most countries were not prepared uh, for this. Uh, secondly, uh, the responses were too slow at each level, and that includes, uh, uh, frankly, for, for most countries as well. Uh, and then thirdly, many didn't have in place the mechanisms to stop uh, the pandemic becoming a full-blown social crisis and also economic uh, crisis. So going forward uh, from this, and I'm not giving away any secrets because I've said this many times in discussions about COVID, uh, it is a disease of inequality. It has hit people very, very differently, uh, both country to country and within countries. Uh, those who have uh, been able to cushion uh, their people from the social and economic effects are those who have had universal social protection in place. But four billion of the world's citizens don't have even basic universal social protection. So along comes a lockdown to contain a disease, which can be very necessary, but people still have to put food on the table and there's no social security uh, to do that with. So I hope that out of this pandemic comes a call for universal basic uh, social protection to be financed by whatever means, obviously mostly from a country's own budget, for, but for least developed countries, it will require a global solidarity. Secondly, universal health coverage is an absolute must, and it has to be universal. It has to reach every corner of a society. That means migrant and undocumented workers, because otherwise you may sit self-satisfied as a country thinking, oh, we've got COVID contained, but you forgot about the migrant workers' hospitals, where it got away again because you weren't reaching uh, them. Uh, thirdly, uh, COVID has brought to the fore the issue of health inequalities, the non-communicable diseases burden, which again falls most heavily on marginalised groups, on lower socioeconomic groups, uh, on ethnic and indigenous minorities. We have to work much harder to over, overcome those. So those would be you know, three very basic learnings, the universal social protection, the universal health coverage, uh, attacking the social uh, determinants uh, of, of health. Yeah, the, the, these are critical. Before we even start on your, your stress testing for preparedness and, and how you're going to respond, you need the basics in place. Well, I know that when you were serving as prime minister, um, much of Asia had this shock of SARS and that it mobilized thought and action at the legislative level in terms of preparedness documents. Can you give our audience a little sense of that history and some of the lessons then that were very, very effective in making New Zealand a real model for the entire planet in terms of immediate action, definitive action and success? So for most of the world in 2003, SARS was the dog that didn't bark. It hit in China, uh, it uh, hit in uh, some countries in, in the region. In New Zealand, we were very, very vigilant, as I'm sure Australia was, sitting at the bottom of the Asia 
uh, Pacific Basin as, as we do. Uh, so I was Prime Minister. Uh, we did a review uh, post-SARS of whether we'd had the level of readiness, had the worst happened for us. And one of the learnings was we needed to update our legislation. And so in 2005, our government passed the Epidemic uh, Preparedness Act. And that was very important going into this pandemic because our government had a, you know, a not ancient piece of legislation, you know, a 15-year-old piece of legislation which had been specifically written after a pandemic event in the region. I think that was very, very important. And will there be a way that some of these new ideas, the notion of an international treaty around preparedness, the talk of maybe a decade of uh, action on preparedness, like we have now on natural disasters, but on epidemics, or some of these multilateral and more global things, uh, a good next step for bringing us all up to that sort of level of preparedness? I think there's a, a growing consensus that a framework pandemic uh, convention of some kind is, is going to be a good idea. It will focus attention that helps mobilise action. When I was a, a young health minister in 89-90, I was going to the World Health Assembly pushing for a framework convention on tobacco, and it happened. And that has galvanised action on tobacco. So in the same way, I think a framework convention on pandemics will elevate the issue uh, again. And that's very important because the response to uh, public health emergencies of international concern uh, hasn't been what we would have hoped in this instance. Uh, Dr. Tedros made the declaration of that uh, public health emergency of international concern, a FIAC for short, and we'll use that phrase from now, on the 30th of January. But as our panel has looked at what happened after that, and of course before, but after the month of February, is like a, a deep hole that, where nothing much happened in many countries. Now, let's accept you know, East Asia from that, because, you know, Korea knew about SARS. Um, you know, the countries in the region have had the experience that they were much more vigilant. But elsewhere, it was almost as if the world having escaped a bullet with SARS and escaped a bullet with, uh, with Ebola and largely escaped a, a bullet outside Latin America and the Caribbean with, with Zika. We watched what was happening in China as though it couldn't happen to us. This was ridiculous. When you have such a declaration made by the Director General of the WHO, every country has to move on to alert. It's not about other people over there. It could be you. And here's the difference with SARS from 2003, one of the key differences. In 2003, China was not the globally connected country that we know today and, and wow. whose tourists and travel we, we value today. Uh, today, a pathogen like this virus, which gets out, will be on a plane within hours and it's moving. So we have to respond faster. And that's a message to every country. Never ignore a fear as though it did not uh, apply to you because we'll all pay the price as we have. I've noted that some 
countries like, let's say, South Korea, who certainly have the financial and technological and pharmaceutical firms and capacity to have produce their own, like the U.S., I mean, a kind of a nationalist view and the U.K. and others. But South Korea and other countries, yours and others, said we are going to be part of the COVAX system because that's what it'll take to have an equitable approach to something that we know either is going to be universal or none of us are safe. Do you think that awareness is part of that kind of learning that, you know, SARS kind of was a shock to the system and there's no way to say, oh, we're going to be safe because we're rich or we're, you know, an industrial country. There seemed to be uh, as much disparity in the intelligence and the future thinking of countries' responses as we see disparities in, let's say, um, the deaths for indigenous people and people of color. So there's several different kinds of disparities in this yeah. COVID response. Yes, there, there are disparities at every level, the disparities with, within our countries and then the disparities uh, globally. Now, when our panel issued its um, interim report with observations about what had happened in, in January, we made a call uh, for vaccines to be rolled out equitably. And at that time, the background was the people's vaccine movement. And the point was a simple equity and rights one. It said, what's fair about us in New Zealand and Canada, say, uh, being vaccinated in the next few months, uh, when in Sierra Leone or Somalia, it may be, 2023, 2024, because COVAX uh, only set an ambition for this year to vaccinate 20% of people in low and middle income uh, countries, which clearly is grossly insufficient. Uh, they have had hopes of getting up to 27% supplementing COVAX by other means. Even that's tough at the moment with the vaccine nationalism, which is leading to restrictions on, on exports and so on. But what became even more apparent after our January report was that the issue of the vaccine rollout goes beyond that equity between each of us to be able to access an essential protection to the fact that if we don't stop transmission everywhere, we are going to see more and more variants. Right. The control of the disease becomes more challenging. I think it, in many countries like my own, the assumption was a vaccine will come along, we'll all have it, and we'll be fine. No, because the variants are going to challenge the vaccines. Now, the, the scientists will find a solution, but it will mean regular revaccination to cope with new variants. So we've got to try and get this genie back in, in the bottle because you can see the logistical challenge now. Uh, it, it, it's tough enough to roll it out to the you know significant proportion of the world's 7.6 billion people once to do it every year. I mean, th th this is huge. So we have to arrest transmission. Vaccine is a critical tool in that uh, right now and, and updating uh, vaccines. So, by the way, are the non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions, the public health measures 
we are going to have to keep up a significant level of vigilance. At the moment, you know, the, the best hope is to move from pandemic phase to endemic, but I would personally love to see our world aspire uh, to what uh, countries like New Zealand and Australia have set as their goal. If you see it, you stamp it out. Every time you see it, you contain it, you stamp it out. That, that's where we want to be. It's a big hill to climb at the moment. Well, and I think people have resonated with, you know, some, for example, the, the, the big accomplishments that have been made on polio and, you know, other things in their lifetime and organizations like Rotary. And, you know, there is a kind of a social awareness uh, of this general idea. But at some point now, the discussion becomes something about money. People in more wealthy countries spending quite a bit of money on stimulus and other things. Today, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen began uh, bringing home to the United States a discussion I think she's been having kind of quietly with the larger partners of the United States um, about some kind of a minimum corporate tax and some way of a more global approach so there isn't as much of an incentive to sort of uh, have a tax haven or to use tax rate uh, manipulations to attract. But do you see from your experience with um, heads of state, uh, finance ministers, the international bodies, the European Bank and the World Bank, do you see the way that we might move to ensure the, the amount of money that's needed to invest to first be prepared to stamp it wherever it shows up and then be able to do it um, in the way that would make it effective and would eventually basically have it under control you know, to the extent that we can. The issue with investing in preparedness is that it, it's often about investing in the dog that didn't bark. And when budgets are pressed, it's easy to sort of put aside money uh, for the kinds of things which would help you be resilient to a to a pandemic threat. But clearly every finance minister in the world knows the cost of COVID to their, their budgets and to their uh, economies. Uh, I know the IMF World Bank uh, meetings are online uh, this week out of Washington, D.C., and the IMF uh, well, tells us broadly that the global economic uh, loss uh, for 2020 20, 21 will run at about 10 trillion, 10 trillion, not small, and for the, the 2020 to 2025 period, the, the loss from COVID will be about 22 trillion. trillion. So, so, so this is huge, right? So th then finance ministers start to get, to get very interested. And by the way, one of the keys to getting the right level of preparedness and response in this is to elevate uh, how you deal with preparedness and pandemic threats out of the sort of bottom layers of a health department bureaucracy with the international health regulation focal point and get it up to the level of finance ministries and presidential and prime ministerial offices and the whole of government coordination. <laughs> if, if we can do that, you know, we're, we're on a roll. Uh, so a number of things I, I think are important here. Firstly, the IMF does have tools. The IMF has its Article 4 consultations. And in the, the time of Christine Lagarde in particular, it began to, began to broaden 
what it was interested in talking to countries about as it assessed their overall you know, f- fiscal uh, and economic conditions. It added in climate change, for example, as a risk. Right. Pandemic is a huge risk. And so I think there's quite a lot of interest in uh, the IMF sort of putting into its Article 4 consultations a discussion about what is your level of resilience to this. Because this matters for the projections of a country's economy. Are you prepared for this risk if, if, if it comes along? That's one point. Second point is that clearly we're talking about a global public good here because an outbreak like this in any country that's highly interconnected uh, is is going to be something with potential risk uh, to all of us. So how do we finance uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, preparedness and then response? So if if you separate uh, the two, I think that uh, for the high middle income countries and the high income countries like New Zealand and Canada in the latter category, of course, we're expected to finance our own preparedness and and response. Uh, But for the many of the lower middle income countries, there does need to be a global finance uh, aspect to this. The the question is, is it a standalone facility? Is it a window in the the World Bank? What extra fiscal tools and and promissory (laughs) notes, if you like, does the IMF need? You need to build the capacity for preparedness and lower middle income countries that, that don't have it. And then uh, when a pandemic threat materialises, uh, the response will need finance. And that needs to come pretty quickly. So you do need a dedicated window or facility uh, somewhere for this. So there's a lot of different concepts about our, our uh, panel. We'll have something to say on this. Uh, the, IM, uh, the G20 has set up a task team uh, headed uh, uh, by the former head of the International Finance and Monetary uh, Committee of IMF and Singapore Deputy PM and Finance Minister, uh, and they are looking at what the mechanisms might be. We're talking to them. I think Mario Monti, uh, who's doing a review for the European uh, region of WHO, a lot of people are thinking along these lines now, how to finance a global public good and make sure that the money can reach every corner on earth. So this seems like a a very good thing. Uh, You're mentioning the necessity of kind of pushing it up the agenda and getting it at that level. That's one thing about the proposed treaty. Then heads of state and and other ministers get involved. I've been aware that some of the large uh, sort of public events, the Olympics debate and questions in in Tokyo, the uh, World Expo planned in Dubai and the World Expo planned in Osaka, this has generated a certain kind of discussion. And Her Excellency Reem Al-Hashimi, the head of the Expo in Dubai, uh, came out, I think, in a Bloomberg uh, TV interview saying our legacy of the Dubai 2020 Expo, which has been postponed a year, but coming in October, won't be something like an Eiffel Tower. It will be a universal, inclusive global healthcare system. And so she's taken the opportunity of this crisis to say out loud what you've been saying and others in their conversations, that we're not all going to be safe until we're all safe. That means it has to be global. That means it has to be about inclusion, everybody, not just somebody. And we have to do this together. And we were thrilled here in Minnesota because we're uh, bidding to host 
the World Expo in 2027, so after Osaka, on sustainable development goal number three, good health and well-being for all at all ages. So we can imagine if the Dubai folks kick off a global campaign of some kind about a universal, inclusive global health system, that 2027, we can help push that ball in 2030, the deadline for many of those sustainable development goals, we can see progress over a decade. Are you optimistic that we can get this ball rolling and keep it rolling now that we've been warned a few times? Well, if not then, if not now, when? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, look, look it, it, never before has a pandemic threat, which actually materialized into an actuality and catastrophe, uh, commanded the attention of heads of government and state like this. So this this is the time to act. And, and certainly uh, our panel have things to say about uh, the way in which heads of state and government need to be involved. You know, if you go back to the great global agreements of 2015, the sustainable development goals, there was a, you know, a, a summit at the UN. Uh, but the same year, there was the Sendai framework disaster resilience. Well, how many heads of state went to that? Very, very few. And actually, in the Sendai outcome document, there are good references uh, for uh, the, the pandemic resilience that needs to be built and the preparedness and being risk-informed about pandemics. So we now have the opportunity to lift this out of the, the sort of you know, levels of ministers of, of civil defence and IHR International yeah. Health Regulation focal points and bring it up to the top level of government, which is where it needs to be. These are existential threats. You know, the far-sighted in our global community have been warning us of what a pandemic could do. I don't think anyone really took a lot of notice of them. Now we've seen what it can do. We know that zoonotic diseases, the animal-to-human transmissions, are going to keep coming at us. So we've got to be ready. We've got to be better prepared. We've got to act. When WHO says jump, we jump, right? We don't mess around and, and watch. I'm confident if we can all get these messages, if governments determined to really overhaul, review and overhaul uh, all their response and preparedness mechanisms, and we get the right level of global focus and, and attention and alert and surveillance, and communication, and good scientific guidance. We can do this. You know, it's not rocket science what has to be done. It's political will. And I think my appeal to your audience today would be help generate the political will to lock this in so that, you know, we don't just forget. We'd forgotten about 1918. You know, my father's 99 years and three weeks old. He wasn't born in 1918. Yeah, very few among us living today have any any memory, probably no one, of, of, of 1918. Let's not forget this one. Prime Minister Clark, thank you so much for inspiring us, for terrifying us, for giving us a picture of the fact that we have the raw materials if we put the political will together and if it gets taken to the highest level of leadership and all of us have to be engaged in making that political will come to life 
in addition to taking our personal responsibility and be part of the solution. Thank you again for joining us and be safe there in New Zealand. Hi, my name is James Hereford. I'm the president and CEO of Fairview Health Services. And we're here to mark World Health Day. And I'm here to talk about health equity. I'm very proud of our organization. M Health Fairview is led through action. And we do so at a time when healthcare systems have become increasingly unaffordable, inaccessible, and inequitable. The pandemic has laid bare these inequities. Statewide data shows that minority and underserved communities in Minnesota have experienced greater rates of illness, hospitalization, and death since the pandemic began. While BIPOC Minnesotans represent 21% of the overall population, they also represent 28% of COVID-19 cases, 31% of those hospitalized, and 36% of those admitted into ICUs. Latinx Minnesotans test positive for COVID at a rate three times higher than whites, and Black Minnesotans are testing positive at twice the rate. Adjusted for age, Indigenous, Black, and Latinx Minnesotans have the highest COVID-19 death rates. And national data suggests Black, Indigenous, and people of color and the disabled have had less access to vaccines as they're distributed nationally. ML Fairview the team that we put together to uh, think through vaccinations knew that if they approached this solely on the base of, basis of age, it would lead to disparate outcomes. So they made the decision to take proactive steps to ensure underserved populations have access to vaccines. They did so through a multi-pronged approach. They leveraged community health needs assessment data to identify areas of highest need. And then they set up pop-up vaccine sites in partnership with trusted community organizations. They also identified our own clinics and conducted practice to our patients most at risk, and then partnered also with public health in areas of highest need, including Ramsey County. The diverse and historically disenfranchised communities have faced significant barriers to health care and have had little trust we approached this from the use of our mini clinics, the Minnesota Immunization Network that has immunized over 100,000 Minnesotans in the last 15 years in a partnership. So we used this mini model and we're able to move and mobilize quickly into action. So since January, we've been delivering vaccines in community centers, church vestibules, homeless shelters, and food shelter offices. Trusted leaders, the minister, the imam, the neighbor, is there to reassure and assuage fears. And our cultural broker program also provides a trusted face, a trusted individual to work with. Through this model, we've delivered more than 250,000 vaccines across the MHealth Fairview system. More than 11,500 have been at 65 different community partner sites, including sites in partnership with County Public Health with more vaccines being administered to patients every day. We've made our COVID vaccine information available in six different languages. We've shot videos with trusted community leaders in three languages to give voice about the need to be vaccinated. 
As we begin to look beyond the pandemic, we must ensure we're delivering culturally competent care, both inside and outside our walls. Systemic racism in healthcare appears many ways. One place is in the calculators that healthcare providers use to assess risk. One of those is for kidney health. The estimated glomerular filtration rate, or EGFR, has been automatically adjusted based on the race of the patient. Black patients had one set of guidelines, non-black patients had another. mHealth Fairview will stop using this EGFR adjustment. This change is necessary because the science that underpins it about a race-adjusted EGFR is just wrong. It's incorrect about its assumptions. Race is not a biological construct, it is a social construct. It's simply bad science, and it can have a significant consequence for that person's healthcare. Health equity must be a driving force for transformation and innovation in healthcare. The pandemic has rapidly accelerated both our innovation and adoption to better serve patients. One great example is virtual care. During the pandemic, in the first month of COVID, we delivered more virtual visits than we did in the entirety of the prior year. More than 400,000 virtual visits have been delivered since then. And the benefits and impacts on health equity are clear. We can provide healthcare without having to take time off of work or to deal with transportation issues or to arrange childcare or many of the other barriers that people experience. In addition to virtual, we're looking beyond to new and bold ways to improve health outcomes and deliver better care. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The same is true in addressing health disparities. We simply can't deliver the same care and the same delivery methods and somehow hope to improve health outcomes. That's why we're reimagining our facility at St. Joseph's as a community hub of health and well-being to really get upstream, to really think about health, not simply being the high quality provider once sickness has gotten to a stage where it has to be dealt with. And that's so true uh, for many communities where they use the ED uh, as their primary care provider. That emergency department uh, at St. Joseph's, we know 70% of the visits there were avoidable. They were, we, if we had done a better job of prevention, they would have been unnecessary. That's the basis of moving from sick care to well care, to get upstream, to focus on wellness, to focus on early intervention, to focus on prevention. It also means focusing on the so-called social determinants or social risks to health. These upstream interventions are especially critical to the unsheltered population. They seek, frequently seek shelter uh, and care in our ED. This does not set them up for long-term health or success. So that's why we partnered with Ramsey County in using our Bethesda facility to create a safe shelter. And that partnership has been ongoing. We have a nurse on site to be able to deliver care and to make sure that we're uh, heading off uh, inappropriate uh, ED utilization and to make sure that we're focusing on early care and prevention wherever we can. We've also uh, partnered with the county to provide COVID testing and vaccines on site. Public-private partnerships drive innovation towards more affordable, accessible, and equitable care. Real progress is gonna re require us to take integrative approaches 
not simply across our healthcare systems, but across all of the services that serve our communities. It's also going to require us to really take a hard look at Medicaid reform, which doesn't promote the kind of upstream wellness-based approaches, early intervention, and it doesn't promote the kind of holistic approach to really identifying and dealing with social risks in the way that they need to. We need to make sure that our investments are fully utilized in terms of promoting health, and we need to advocate for more investment in social supports. Working to maximize community partnerships is gonna be critical to building trust and to build connection to make a real difference in healthcare and health status. So on World Health Day, let's commit not just to talking about or even celebrating our advances, but let's commit to doing the work to ensure that we have affordable, accessible, and equitable healthcare for all of the communities that we're here to serve. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta Airlines. And on behalf of our 75,000 employees worldwide, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for everything that you have all done with your collective organizations and as individuals to help us through the most difficult year of our lives in facing the pandemic. Uh, it's been a year of, of unbelievable uh, success in terms of racing and finding a vaccine that's protecting our lives and allowing us to return to life. But it's also been an incredibly difficult year as we've lost so many and have had such a tragic uh, year that, that we've watched unfold. Uh, at Delta, we've done our very best to take care of our people, to protect our people throughout the pandemic, from testing to ensuring that they are, if they're at risk, they can't be at the job, protecting their pay, to finding ways to, to get the vaccines uh, delivered around the world, to opening up our campus here in Atlanta and having uh, thousands and thousands of vaccinations occur right on our campus, the largest vaccination site in the state of Georgia. And all of this has been about a theme of protecting, protecting our health, protecting our wellness, protecting our future, and also understanding that in today's world, the pandemic has opened our eyes to th those that are most vulnerable uh, throughout society, including those that haven't had a voice, whose voice was finally heard. We had a chance to see and, and decide what we were going to do to stand by them and lift them up and, and help them through uh, this most turbulent time. So on behalf of all of us here at Delta, I applaud you for an amazing, amazing year and, and you know, hearts are, go out to all of you. I wish you nothing but the best in uh, the year ahead as we now are firmly into the recovery phase from the pandemic. And uh, once again, thank you. Your, your work means so much to so many.